Welcome back everyone to another exciting episode of 0 to 1 founder. I'm Sachin Jaiswal your host and I'm thrilled to be here today. Today we are delving deep into the heart of every successful startup, their unique and vibrant company culture. What exactly is company culture you might wonder? Well, we are here to not only define it but to explore how it shaped, nurtured and how it can propel your startup to greater heights. In this episode will be your guides on a journey through the fascinating world of building company culture. We'll share insights, real world examples and practical advice that you can apply to your own entrepreneurial endeavors. From the visionaries like Netflix who've paved the way to the strategies that work and even how to navigate the challenges we've got it all covered. Without further ado, let's embark on this enlightening journey of building a company culture that defines success. It all starts right here right now on 0 to 1 founder podcast. Hello Devashish and welcome to the 0 to 1 podcast where we largely talk about why the life of a 0 to 1 founder is different and how do you really go about building for this 0 to 1 journey? and i have devashish with me who's been a serial entrepreneur and has been a mentor to various startups including us i will let devashish introduce himself thank you sachin it's good to be catching up with you again currently i'm building salarynext.com which is a job loss assurance startup my previous journey was building quizx.com which was a platform an aggregator of recruitment agencies in india so that quizx itself was a zero to one startup because it was one of its kind and similarly my current journey salary next which is a job loss assurance startup is again a zero to one because again it's a one of its kind startup awesome thanks ashish for the introduction so for everyone today we are delving deep into the topic of building a company culture and this is at the depth of or rather at the heart of every successful startup their unique and vibrant company culture and i think the best time that i got to learn about the difference in company culture and how big of a role it plays was i remember when we were at our previous startup and we were interacting with two big companies i'm not going to name them but one company of course there were few big tech companies and one company had a very strong tech first approach to solving a problem and they were very clear and they in fact told this to us that we are only going to pick problems that we can solve by sitting on a laptop in a ac and can code it away and on the other hand there was another uh, big tech company and they were an ops first company and they were very clear that they will get their hands dirty they will do operations if it requires them to solve a customer's query they will take that up and they're going to be customer backwards and i think that principle that culture was ingrained in the top leadership especially people who'd been there for 10 15 years and they speak that language they chose the problem statements that align with their company culture and also their personal values and these people were like at very senior position so i would imagine that this kind of shapes the company's future as well and yeah i think both of them are successful in their own right like they're really really massive companies trillion dollar companies and irrelevant to the way that they chose to solve a problem both of them were equally successful 
So yeah, it is about the culture that you want to build and how strong you choose to ingrain it. Actually, a good culture will be ingrained, will be very, very deeply ingrained is what our hypothesis is. And today we largely going to cover these aspects of company culture and would love to get your take on this, Devashish. Like, how do you think about the significance of company's culture in the startup's journey to success? Sachin, I'll start with the examples that you used and I put them in context. So you've used examples of two, let's say, very successful or very massive companies, right? And then you've seen that they have very different approaches to problem solving and which is the result of their culture. Now, business, like we can look at the business journey on one extreme of the startup, which is just an idea getting into formation, trying to build something which will deliver value to the world. And on the other extreme is a company which has been a startup, gone through the growth phase, reached a massive size and already delivered value to the world. So when we look at very large companies and identify what's in their culture, we are basically looking at companies that have been successful. And we say, okay, each successful company has got a distinctive identity, a distinctive signature in terms of culture, right? So today we'll take the discussion right from one end, from the very large companies and down back to startups and try to figure out that, hey, does culture have a role to play? Like once a company is successful and then you say, hey, they have this unique culture. Then the question comes is, does this company have a role to play? Did it ever have a role to play or it has a role now? Now that the culture is ingrained, the decision making is defined. It has a direction. Let's say, for example, if there's a tech first company and the manager finds an interesting business opportunity, but that business opportunity involves operations. If the manager is senior enough, he will know that if I take on this problem, the chance of me succeeding is very low because my company is not an operations-led company and somewhere the operations will fail, right? So he avoids such a problem. I mean, simply from a perspective of delivering successful results, he will avoid such a problem. Whereas a manager in a different company who has complete confidence in his team for solving operations problems would jump at that opportunity. The manager's own wisdom, especially senior people, as you brought out, senior people were very clear. Senior people have a sense of what resources they have at their disposal. And culture or the behavior of the people in their team and knowing their team becomes one of those resources. So putting that in context of two very successful companies, before we step into the world of startups and zero to one, let's look at how people studied culture. So there is a very famous quote, which is now part of management lexicon which says culture eats strategy for breakfast. Now, this quote is attributed to Peter Drucker, the foremost management guru of the previous century. Unfortunately, there's no direct reference that is being by Peter Drucker, but everybody understands that or everybody knows the statement culture eats strategy for breakfast. Not too sure how many people understand it. So when culture is strategy for breakfast, again, let's without diverting from the same two examples. Let's say one of the companies takes on, say some new company takes on one of these large companies and they say, hey, you know what? We are going to replicate the success of that company. Let's say they take on the operations giant and say, we're going to replicate that success of that company. right? And that becomes a strategy that we are going to replicate and compete with that particular company. Now, in that giant company, maybe there's an ingrained culture which makes it very sharply operations focused over a period of time people have been hired who fit into that culture then the people who survived and remained in the company are people who identify with that culture so it's got a very strong dna and here's another company a person starts say let's hire the best we can do in the market then they will say okay this is our budget let's hire people within this budget 
okay, uh, let's take this kind of offices because that looks good. Let's use that technology because this looks good. And do you think you'll end up with a real competitor to the operations giant? So the strategy was we are going to take on the operations company, but there was no underlying DNA defining various arms of the company. Now, if you take every individual in a company and the work that he does, so every individual is working, right? They're working in a particular direction. So the amount of work that they put in uh, would be a quantity and the direction. So when you add a quantity and a direction for the engineers amongst us, we would call that a vector. There is a quantity and the direction, right? Now, there's so many vectors in the company. You have 10,000 employees, you have 10,000 vectors. The net sum of all those vectors will give you a net vector. If all the directions, they're pointing in the same direction, then you've got a massive, massive vectors. So here you have this large company with the operations DNA ingrained, which means everybody's focus is on one direction. Let's say optimizing costs, efficiency, productivity, right? You have a massive vector. There's another company without the understanding of culture or without the focus on culture. So you have multiple valuable vectors, but the net sum of all the vectors, the people who are acting at cross purposes, different departments, different individual, different vectors at cross purposes, the net sum of maybe 10,000 people will not be as massive as the market leader. So that's how culture will define competition going forward. And that's the genesis of the statement that irrespective of your strategy, if your culture doesn't support it, the strategy is the one is going to intern, lose the internal battle to culture. Yeah. And I'm going to name the two companies that I took an example of earlier. Uh, of course, uh, I think the listeners would have understood that one is Google and the other is Amazon. And I think there have been multiple attempts from one company to encroach into the other space. For example, Google has tried to get into e-commerce and they have tried to launch shopping and so many other attempts to capture e-commerce primarily because they wanted to not lose the the commerce search and because that's the most profitable search in terms of monetization and they wanted to compete they tried multiple attempts but they just could not get their hands dirty into solving e-commerce and it is you're right culture eats strategy for breakfast they have had many strategy that they built internally but they just could not get past cross that chasm Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, since you name those companies, let's say Amazon is known for a very frugal culture right from day one. Everything is focused on getting the minimum prices to the customers, for example. So the investment in, let's say, in their offices will be very different from the way Google will build their offices, right? Whereas Google got this 20% personal time kind of rule, which means, say, one day out of five, you can work on a personal project. Project means a business project, but which is like what you want to build and try out something, right? So that means it automatically enhances, builds a culture of innovativeness. Four days you're working on what your manager told you, and one day in a week you're working on some project they've taken on. This particular feature of the culture resulted in innovations like Gmail. Google was a search engine, and then you had Gmail and many other products that have come through. So it's very clear that Google's culture is focused at building innovation, and in the practices actually pour in resources. It's as good as pouring 20% of your human resource into building new stuff. And it's not that Amazon won't take risks, but Amazon will completely assess the cost benefit, plan it through so that operationally is executed very well. So they will end up solving lots of problems. The approach would be very different. Yeah, the Google, the policy is called 20% time policy. 
I mean, it's not 100% strictly followed, but broadly that policy exists. Agreed. So let's shift gear, Devashish. So let's go to the basics, which is like, how do you define a company culture? What a company culture is and why it matters? So let's use a very simple analogy. Right? So I'm visiting the houses of two of my friends and their parents. Right? In one house, I take off my shoes outside the door because that's what the culture of the house is. So it's a practice, a simple practice to take off the shoes. In another house, they say, hey, no need to take off the shoes. Please walk in because there were shoes in the house. So this becomes a practice. It doesn't define the culture, right? So practice will come in from an underlying culture. And if you ask the members of the family, they will say, why do you do this? This is how we have always done it, right? Shoes are dirty or something is dirty. So, so that's the way they look at their home. Okay, home needs to be clean. Shoes may come in from outside. It's associated with dirt. Now, scientifically, that may be true or not true. That's not the point at all out here, right? Now you can take a guess. That, okay, um, maybe after you finish a meal in the house where you take the shoes outside, what would you want to do? So there'll be high priority of how quickly we do the dishes. It's more likely. There's a cultural alignment and everybody in the house starts following little things. You can assume that there will be a lot of emphasis while growing up that, hey, whether your books are neatly packed or not. You're making certain assumptions just from a small particular practice. But this is how the entire thing starts building up. There'll be maybe emphasis on like if you're sitting down for prayers, have you had a bath before sitting down for prayers? So then you can make out an entire cultural persona. Or if you have got a cultural persona, then you can make out, okay, these kind of practices would be there. Now the same thing, what we do at a house, let's look at the society level. Let's say if you step into a different country, any country, if you've been abroad, any country you step into, the moment you get out of the airport, you know that things are very different. It might be little things in the way people talk to each other, behave with each other. They are just doing what they have done all their lives while growing up. So country also has a culture. And inside a country, there will be regions which have different flavors. So the experience in, say, the experience in Mumbai will be very different from, let's say, the experience in um, Delhi or, say, Guwahati. All the three cities will have a different culture. That same thing you take to workplace. How do people behave in a particular closed or an open environment. A city is an open environment, house is a closed environment, office is a closed environment for most purposes. How do people behave? And how does it influence their decision making? Well, what, what's relevant for businesses? How does it influence their decision making? So that's how we would do culture. Culture is the behavior in a particular space. Right? Ultimately, the culture itself becomes the space in which people behave. It's not the walls of the office. But the culture itself becomes the space. The culture defines the walls. Culture defines the doors the points of entry, the points of exit, the walls of the office become meaningless. So you can define culture as a virtual wall. Same thing that you would define in a home. Hey, this person won't fit in here. Or I don't fit in, you know, in that particular city. I just cannot live in that city. So I don't identify myself with the DNA of that city. So that's how culture would be. What one would define culture in a company. Got it. And you gave a very interesting example that there's a distinction between the practices and the culture. So I think just drawing from that analogy, Google's 20% rule or free food, free snacks, those would be practices versus what is culture about then? How do you articulate culture? So uh, let's say practice would be, let's say we had this uh, world leaders visiting India recently, right, for a G20 summit. Suppose they come to India and we call them for some kind of festival. And everybody decides to dress up in Indian clothes. The fact that they've dressed up in Indian clothes is a practice. 
but would it mean that their thoughts became Indian? Would they take decisions like an Indian? They simply wouldn't, right? A classic case. They would still have their own way of thinking. So somebody, say, adopting Google's cultural edge to 20% time or innovation role, and my company would be as innovative as Google. Unfortunately, 20% time then becomes that practice. That tell all my people, you know what? Hey, you know, one day in a week, you can do your project. Great, done. Let's implement it. Now you've got a set of hierarchy. Say you're the founder, then there are your CXOs or the core team, and then there are mid-level managers, etc. right? Now you've also given a target to someone. Let's say you've given a sales target or you've given a, a target to the tech and product team, right? Now your co-founder or CTO is driving that and he's pushing it down the team. And, uh, you know, on a Friday, let's say a bunch of people are working on a side project. They say, you know what, Fridays are 20% off. The question is, do you really value innovativeness versus a deadline? And then that will define whether practice is implemented or not. Otherwise, it will only be named. So Friday is 20% off, but the mid-level manager has told his people, hey, you know what, you figure it out some other time, but today we need to ship. So, and then this Friday goes and technically they say, oh, 20% off, we'll do it some other day when things are better. But next week there's another shipping deadline and there's another shipping deadline and another shipping deadline and nothing happens. And maybe they get one Friday off in between sometime. They actually work, but there's been a gap. It's been a, say, months gaps in the previous Friday. They've lost the thread. Nothing comes out. And then as a founder, I come and criticize, hey, none of the 20% projects are working. So are we hiring the wrong people? And the question comes in. May not be, but maybe the practice is not matching with the DNA of the company. Yeah. Okay. So culture is not practice. It is closer to the DNA of the company. But how do you really go about setting that culture? How did you go about advising us at Nikki to go and build that culture? There are two parts to it. One is you don't set a culture. Whatever happens, happens. And thereafter, you study it and define, hey, what is this culture? Right. Many places, people don't think it through. Let's say, it would be probably fair to say, when two people start a family, maybe they don't always think it through. How are we going to do each part? How are we going to handle finances? So they take it on the fly. And when they face a problem, then they define, oh, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do in the future? Or when the family grows, they have kids, then they decide, oh, how are we going to parent, etc.? And some people are pretty meticulous in doing it. They would decide in advance, how are we going to act as parents? How are we going to manage our finances? They decide. And the third category, they actually implement the decisions. Lots of people who decide, but when the rubber hits the road, the decisions don't hold up. Right? Similarly with culture. So most founders, especially younger ones, would tend to focus on business first. Let's get the revenue flowing. Let's get product market fit. Let's move on to revenue, etc. And let's do whatever it takes to get there. And that's what they've been told by everyone, you know, hustle, hustle hard. So that becomes value number one, just let hustle, see what is working right now. And then after some time, as they grow larger and they say, why are things not working out? When I had a 50 member team, everything would work out the way I wanted. Now that I've got a multi-city 300 member team, somehow my team in the other city, Jaipur, is not working in the same way as my team in Hyderabad. What's up here? Right. And then they seek, say, fresh advice. And then it comes in, hey, you don't have a culture. You just give goals to various people and expect them to execute. But there's no common thread. So you don't get similar outcomes. Culture helps you to get similar outcomes. And that's when they say, hey, what is my culture? And then they'll observe what has already been built. Okay, that's the existing culture. This is where we are. This is where we need to go kind of stuff. Then comes this people who are second-time founders and who understand that there is a life beyond PMF. So 
then they learn new language like distribution market fit dmf and then this culture and then they said hey you know what just focusing on building a product may not get me a company i need to think through distribution i need to think through people right then they look at multiple aspects from day one right so that's how people would look at culture from day one so often times it is easy to step into a company and see hey you know what the biggest thing that needs to be done first thing sometimes it is sales sales is broken sometimes operations sometimes it's simple the biggest problem one can see is hey you know what culture is broken let's first get culture on track let a common thread take everyone along and automatically the quality of decision making and execution will improve no one is saying it has to be the google culture no one is saying it has to be the netflix culture or the zappos culture or the amazon cultures right but there is a common dna which gives direction to decision making aligns all the vectors choosing the direction still up to the founders what business you want to build etc yeah so i think two very vital points that you mentioned you touched upon how values help shape the culture that is what shapes the dna and in fact it is largely values beliefs behaviors the package is what people call as culture these days and the other point that you talked about is how companies start facing challenge and then they realize that hey i need to work on my culture and i realize that at nikki that was where we were after two two and a half years of operations we had a leadership team but there was a lot of churn and it was not a great healthy culture and we realized that we need to start working on actively defining it and that is when we started engaging with you as well and i think at that point is when we started working on building the culture and i don't think it necessarily started with hey what is the culture we want to build but it was of course as you mentioned that it became about what is the common belief that we had collectively as team and then we started doing that exercise where we wrote down what are the values that each of us in the leadership team in the ground level team and even among the founders all of us we kind of believe in and then we from bottoms up we started creating a culture that could represent the company and i think since then the complete trajectory of the company changed it was definitely not overnight it took some time to really ingrain that culture but i realized that after that the first 3 years and the last 3 years were like poles apart right first three years we had a huge churn and team was not happy in the last 3 years even though we had a lot of volatility in the business and in terms of decisions that we took and we actually faced different volatility in the market situations we went through covid there were layoffs etc cetera, etc cetera. but even through all of that the leadership team that we had they stuck with us for the 3 years we grew the fastest in that time i think i remember in 18 months we grew like 30x and this was even pre covid and apart from that we also had a huge alignment with people's culture and even today we still get that feedback from our previous team members that they talk about how nikki's culture was great and they still look for something that really gives them that excitement or something that actually they align to right and they still relish that hey company culture is really really important and they had something special at nikki because of that culture we didn't have funding we didn't have a lot of hip investors but what we had was a culture that people were excited and motivated about and they came every day to work so sachin that's a very awesome thing that you brought on the table that is there can be actually tangible hard measurables to having a culture versus not having a culture having a good culture versus a bad culture like the first metric that you indicated was attrition levels changed especially in the top leadership imagine let's say the attrition numbers move from some say 50% to say 20% what is the impact on any company any founder will tell you hey if my attrition number changes so many more things will get done 
because I'm not worried about how will I hire, my senior hire is gone, so much of domain knowledge is gone. The new person, I will spend a lot of effort and time in hiring, maybe six months, get a new person on board, but it's still a gamble at the end of the day. Will that person work out in that role or not? Despite the best intentions, right? Moment you change attrition figures, automatically one can see the cascading effect. Firstly, for me to change the attrition figures, expenses go down and then the cascading effect on the top line comes through, right? So that's a very clear, tangible, measurable. You had further measurables, like for example, you said the growth of the company. Now in a smaller company as a founder, it is possible for you to clearly ascribe the cause and effect of a particular thing. In a larger company, it becomes that complicated. It becomes very complicated in a 10,000 member company that because the culture has changed, how can we measure the difference? But in large companies too, let's take Apple for example. Right? In Apple, the culture has changed from the two leaders. There was Steve Jobs and a lot has been written and spoken and every person has an opinion on Steve Jobs. And then comes Tim Cook, a very different human being from Steve Jobs and the way he's built the company. Let's say the primary thing that comes through is say Steve Jobs' complete focus was on design. Right now, now, Tim Cook retained that focus on design and he increased supply chain or operational efficiency. Right? Now, improving supply chain efficiency is a business kind of outcome. And the outcome in the market is that the sales jumped up, the share price went through the roof, etc. Went up vastly in Tim Cook's time. He's widely seen as a very successful CEO. Steve Jobs was very successful in building an innovative company. And uh, Tim Cook took it to being a massive giant. And underlying what is the difference in culture? Let's say in Steve Jobs' time, there would be a lot of focus on uh, superstars or uh, having an A-team, correct? Driven by, usually by superstars in various places. But getting an operational efficiency or that the other things matter, different kinds of people matter. That was Tim Cook's legacy. Getting in that kind of thinking where Apple will pride itself on making things efficient, which would result in a far more efficient supply chain. Right. So even in large companies, one can, though it becomes very difficult to ascribe cause and effect to specific things, but broadly one can see the trend that you change the culture and your numbers would change. Now, at least there's a very clear correlation and that makes a compelling argument why culture matters. And if culture matters, then planning it through is important. So culture would come in the soft domain, softer aspects of business. But the outcomes are very hard numbers, which you cannot ignore in the direction you take that culture to. That was step one. That is the interesting part that you brought on the table. Even the outcomes are different, right? Steve Jobs delivered an iPhone and Tim Cook delivered a trillion dollar scale. And both of them were very different outcomes. Uh, Steve Jobs delivered an iPhone and Tim Cook scaled that iPhone. And naturally, they were very, very different cultures that resulted in those outcomes. One was an innovative culture, as you mentioned, and the other was an operational excellence culture. Yeah, so Tim Cook maintained that innovativeness because there are further products that have also come out of that stable. The airport itself is a multi-billion dollars boost to Apple, right? So he maintained the innovativeness and he built the supply chain, which enables selling millions of these products across the world. Right. which was the earlier focus was. So, and he increased the lineup. Steve Jobs would also focus on simplicity. We'll have only one product in one particular segment. So he'll have only total, say, four products. But under Tim Cook, then we've got a wide variety of products. So that Apple shifted its positioning. So the culture shifts the positioning of the company. So the culture makes an impact with a small company, as you said in Nikki, and you can actually measure it. In a smaller company, you can see the cause-effect correlation between multiple numbers. Even in a large company, you can broadly see the correlation. 
so first argument is that yes culture matters and even though it's a soft thing you better think through it because it's going to impact the numbers and your destination but destination is going to change and the speed at which you approach the destination is going to change the second part is that okay as you said in nikki's case after say three years you decided to take a look at culture maybe because you had an intervention you asked a mentor to help you and since that is something that you were not looking at earlier so the first look that you take at culture and if you've already built a company is to measure it when you measure it you cannot measure it by asking the ceo hey what is the culture of the company ceo has only one view of the company and which is usually a top down every person does not enter the office in the same frame of reference as the ceo does your call center executive has a different frame of reference when he enters into the 8 hour shift and your product manager has a different frame of reference so how do they experience the space and what decisions are they going to take so ceo saying that hey you know my company is innovative and you know we are very efficient is not exactly there so that's why the exercise that was carried out was that every person all levels was defining how they saw the company and all the positives and negatives were defined and when he culled their inputs the anonymized inputs from all these people then we could see ki, okay this is how currently the culture of nikki is broadly as seen by all the members together these are the common points these are common positives these are common negatives but then there was a space to build okay these are the negatives we want to remove from the culture these are the positives we are happy about we want to retain and these are the some positives which are missing but we want then that decision was taken at the founder level or the core team level and then a plan to get to that place so the messaging is that you can take an objective look of where you stand right now once you have an objective look as close to objective you can get then you say ki hey am i happy with this or there's some place else i want to go so define where you are point a where you want to go point b and then have a plan to get there moment you put that plan in execution you will start making progress and you can keep refining it and then you can enjoy the benefits of that execution which is what ultimately nikki did or apple did in its transformation I also remember when we started discussing with you about culture on the first discussion you actually talked about different types of culture that exists there is a star culture and then there is a bureaucratic culture star culture is typically practiced by companies like google and then there are bureaucratic culture which is applied to governments or even companies like infosys where everything is written down as a process and the employees don't have to innovate they just have to follow the process to the dot and in companies like google where you know it's a star culture and they just want to give the best of the experience to everyone they just hire the best of the lot and they give them full autonomy to take decisions to come up with new product and because for them each of the product that they launch for example like a gmail could itself be like a 10 billion dollar company by itself right so the outcome of that is even today we still see that that same culture apply where google has so many people not necessarily all of them are giving high roi but google's attempt is that all of them are stars and even if one of them turns out to produce an outcome it is going to be a big outcome now something a risk like that google could take and they had therefore built a star culture versus for someone like an infosys what they are really focused on is largely getting to operational excellence in delivering the the client's requirement and therefore they have to ensure that they follow that requirement to the dot and either as a result or because the founders envisioned this is how they will build the company and they therefore came up with a bureaucratic culture where they defined everything to the dot and such a culture as you mentioned struggles with innovation but they are very very good at deterministic outcomes correct absolutely 
So two parts to this. One is these names, star culture, bureaucratic culture, and autocratic culture, and engineering culture, and commitment culture. So these all emerged in the 90s. In the 90s in Silicon Valley, people started studying culture and the impact on the companies. 90s was when the internet was just coming into the world and various companies were being built, leading all leading up to the tech boom and bust of 2000. So lots of companies were being built and a lot of work was done. And these companies were built by new founders, different kinds of people were jumping into the internet era. Internet was nothing like any of the previous revolutions, the industrial revolution, etc. Everybody was jumping into this thing and a lot of work was done around culture. At the same time, Peter Drucker was also at his peak and all the management theory that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Some work is done in the culture, how to build startups, what are the different kinds of cultures. And if you ignore focusing on culture in the beginning, then what you get is called a hybrid culture, which can come in various flavors. So these are the work done about say 30 years back in the internet era. And then there'll be some founders which will focus on building a particular culture for a particular business outcome. So very logically speaking that, let's say a services company, IT services company, which needs to deliver a certain outcome or certain service to his client and it is getting paid a certain amount, right? Now, you cannot play around with the kind of revenues you earn from that because that is determined in your contract. And there are some SLAs you need to deliver. So there's a certain amount of efficiency. So there's productivity. Now, if you look at such a business outcome and let's say you're building an Infosys from scratch, then you would say, yes, we need to build an efficient culture. This is the kind of percentage profits or percentage margins on each project that we take. It might be even a cost plus kind of uh, business. Then you say, okay, if you're going to be cost plus, then can we have decision making at the lowest possible levels? The answer comes as no. People need to follow a set outcome. It needs to function like a well-oiled machine. You can't have different parts of the machine, uh, you know, exercising their autonomy. It needs to function like a German car. Right? which means that the selected culture would resemble a bureaucratic culture. Everything is laid down, defined. Please follow that path, right? Do not deviate from that path. Now, on the other opposite of that would be a, say, ad agency, a creative ad agency. Can you take an artist and say, you know what, you need to deliver at 10 o'clock in the morning, you need to come for a meeting and deliver this drawing. No, you let him free. He might not sleep for three days. He might sleep for three days continuously. Creativity cannot be boxed in. So, there you don't optimize for efficiency you optimize for effectiveness like you see one amul ad and it says wow that's a lovely ad but it's a simple ad i am sure those one guy delivered it in two hours flat no i don't think so maybe a bunch of people took maybe three weeks of brainstorming to come up with that there's no timeline to that now google that way would if it's focusing on innovation that means it needs to make space for creativity and in other words space is very important now, when you make space for creativity, then you have to give a lot of freedom and time to those people. Then everything will align in that. So if Google thought through that, hey, you know, we're going to make some awesome products, products, not services, and products are going to impact millions of lives. And we don't know what those products will look like, which means we're going to create them from scratch. And we're not going to be able to look at anyone before creating them. We need to do it in-house. So first thing is, can we get these creators in-house? And creators need a very different atmosphere. So can we create that atmosphere so they stick on? Okay, so they should not be worrying about mundane stuff like food. Okay, so free food. It is not that, hey, we give free food at our office, so we are like Google and so we are creative and, you know, it's not the other way around. It's a round of kind of, so it's creativity, which is effectiveness versus deterministic outcome, which is efficiency. Then you can make sense, hey, this culture is so aligned to the business outcome they want. 
And what happens when culture and business outcomes are not aligned? Can you give any major examples? The answer is we can't because they have died out, right? So if a person has an operational culture and decides to get into a tech innovative space or vice versa, these companies have already died out. So unfortunately, we have a survivor's bias. We're looking at large companies that survived. It's a great study to look at companies that got killed because of the wrong culture, but not too much of literature exists in that. So we'll shift gear a little bit and we'll talk about how culture often starts with the founder's vision and values, right? So while we talked about what is the impact of culture, how does it manifest and how it is a factor of a business outcome that is to be delivered. But at the end of it, and we've also discussed this multiple times that company exists for the founder and it starts with the founder and the culture that the company manifests is largely a reflection of the founder's vision and values. Could we touch upon that or do you want to edit it, amend it or change? Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. So now we are coming to the real crux of our topic, a zero to one. A zero to one founder is a person who's starting from scratch, doesn't have the benefit of a large existing company to do a zero to one journey. By nature of zero to one means you're starting from scratch. And when you start from scratch and everything, everything is a decision. There's no existing framework. Everything is a decision. As a founder, you would revert to what is most comfortable what is most natural to you so whether you choose and you define this is the culture i'm going to build or you forget about culture and you just focus on business which means you're reverting to what comes naturally to you which means that everything that you say and do is going to influence the first let's say you have a couple of co-founders then the language you speak then you hire a core team another seven eight people so seven eight people is spending some couple of months with those seven eight people everybody's influenced by the way you speak because you have started the company with a particular vision. You and your co-founder started a company with a particular vision. The first people who join, they don't know that vision. You have spent more time in that vision. The way you articulated and the way you executed in the first few days. And you're reverting back to your natural self. So whether you state it or not, the first set of people start mirroring. Or as they would say in the mimetic theory, right? We start mirroring, we start acting in that particular fashion. Now, the code team, first seven, ten people are behaving and talking in a particular fashion, right? One or two people leave because they're not comfortable and a new couple of people join who enjoy this. Then the next set of 30 people who join, they look up the leadership. Oh, this is how things are done here. This is how things are spoken here. And slowly a company develops, which one can trace back to, hey, this, you know, company is behaving like the founder or the founders. One can look back on that journey in a small company. This is when you're doing it unconsciously. When you're doing it consciously, then you say, you know what, let's say Tim Cook had to start a company. Now, when we say Steve Jobs started a company, we knew that he had a creative kind of background, right? So it makes sense. Steve Jobs, Apple, creative. Now, that's what what we know of Steve Jobs' story or the way it's publicized in the world. Let's say Tim Cook. Tim Cook is not identified as coming from a creative background, right? What if Tim Cook was conscious that he had to start Apple? But let's see, it doesn't come from a creative background. Let's think that I am not from a creative background, but we need creative people around. I need to create a space for those creative people. That doesn't come naturally to me. So you can think through that, okay, this is what naturally comes to me, but this is something that I can plan and integrate from day one. Yeah, so we'll come to the next part, which is the role of leadership. That's something that we touched upon. Founders and leaders, the first seven, eight people is what kind of helps in shaping up the company's culture. I'll start with the founders, co-founders, the core team still comes one step beyond first to the founders or co-founders got it yeah and i think even we take successful examples of people like tony shea from zappos and he's also created a very valued and unique and customer-centric culture which 
by the way amazon was a juggernaut and no one was able to fight against amazon but eventually zappos could stand strong against it just by focusing on modern vertical but more specifically by focusing on a customer centric culture and eventually amazon bought out zappos for a billion dollar plus that again goes on to show and i think the whole customer centricity that we saw was largely an impact from tony shay so basically people even in competitive spaces if you have identified the gap and you are able to serve that gap by creating a culture around it it's possible to just create a large business outcome doing that yes i completely i personally agree with that so to identify those key things that i find in zappos culture firstly is the way tony shay built this company zappos zappos was an online shoe retailer which held its own against the e-commerce biggies until finally amazon bought it out right other key things that stand out in my mind in zappos culture one is firstly his focus on employees so first he wrote a culture code book he wrote the 10 rules of the zappos culture and then he said ki we are going to do business as per these rules right which means he put culture first over business confident that the business will work out and because it worked out hence we read about zappos or we learn about zappos so first part is he would hire as per the culture and he said and his thought was at if people are hired as per a culture are they also aligned to this culture if they are happy here i would like to keep them if they are not happy i would like them to leave earlier rather than later okay this is one nice thought which many founders would say that if my people are not happy i would rather they leave earlier rather than later but then we fall short in execution so how did he execute it the moment a person would complete let's say his probation in the initial period of 1 to months the next day the hr would call them and give them a two months check here is a two months check sachin you can take this keep the money don't have to come back to work tomorrow if however you choose to come back to work tomorrow return the check to us correct so if sachin is unhappy he says hey you know what they give me two months salary i can go and find another job but if i choose to come back to work i have to return that two months check to the company and say no i love it here that's why i'm going back to work i will work every month and get my salary so it's effectively putting money where his mouth is and here the entire company knows that each person out here have returned the check to come back to office each person knows that you have chosen to be here that's part one the second part is it let's deliver wow service there's a very apocryphal story where somebody called up the customer service and says there's nothing to do with shoes but i'm stuck in this place and i want to order a pizza how do i order a pizza and the customer service says oh where are you stuck oh you're stuck in that place there's a pizza joint nearby do you want me to help you through the pizza ordering which has got nothing to do with what they had done but the core the cultural um, tenet which they were supposed to follow was to deliver a wow experience to the customers now think about it there's a zappos which is selling shoes only shoes in that fashion delivering phenomenal customer experience competing with amazon can you imagine firstly a getting the phone number of the amazon customer service i don't know i've never seen the phone number anywhere suppose you got hold of that phone number and you call amazon customer service and you told them something like hey you know what um, i'm i'm stuck out here i'm not getting a cab can you help me find a cab or can you help me find a pizza would it be rational as a customer to expect any service probably not and if you're not expecting the service then imagine that in zappos that freedom was given to the customer agent so maybe they did not have a target that you know what we need to answer 60 calls a day or reply to 100 tickets in a day right now that requires a lot of strength and a lot of investment in culture just saying that we have a culture which is customer centric and then telling your customer service agent you know what 
your average call should not last more than three minutes. You should solve the problem within three minutes. If you're sitting for eight hours, you need to deliver 100 calls. Otherwise, you know, we'll put it on PIP. So a lot of things will start flowing through from that. And Zappos delivered the outcomes. So he had a clear vision and he planned it. He laid down some rules and then he executed those rules in the hiring process, in the customer-centric process. There are multiple uh, points in this culture. I'll just use two examples. Got it. Yeah, so thanks for sharing that, how cultural alignment is super important in hiring and how it plays a role. Would also love to know more about like, how do you go about as a young startup, how do you go about identifying the core values, which will define your culture and basis, which you should kind of start looking for people or aligning people. So there are two parts to it. If you have done a startup once, you're a serial entrepreneur like you are, you've done one startup, then you have a fair idea of what you liked in your previous company. Or in the outcomes you saw in the people, right? You would have put all your best efforts in hiring the best kind of people at all times. But at various places, you may not have got the physical outcomes. Not because there's something wrong with the person, but because of other reasons. And one of the reasons could be other person's behaving. So what kind of behavior or decision making you want? You've got a fair sense of where you stand. Like, for example, in Nikki's case, one of the things that you had come up with is that you valued ownership. When you defined your culture, you started valuing ownership a lot. So in your new company, the next time you're hiring someone, you would look for people who have displayed ownership. You would try to figure that out from their interviews and their resume and you would ask them behavioral questions and figure out that the way they responded to situations in the past, would that signify that this guy has clear ownership of his work? Now, why do you want ownership? Let's say the way you have thought about in my startup, I want people to be independent, take decisions. It's a decentralized decision-making kind of framework. Closer to Google than to Infosys. I want people to independently take decisions and I want them to take good decisions, right? So that means they need to have ownership. They need to have decision making. So now you have identified two points. Okay, ownership, decision making. So you can sit down and think through, which becomes easier if you've done a startup once. If you're a first time founder, okay, it's more challenging because you might have worked in various companies, but you may not have the, it's, it's a different thing to work and getting, building a structure which delivers an outcomes. So a good idea would often be to, let's say, looking at various companies. And there's a lot of stuff available on the net. One can go through Amazon's principles. They've got a fixed set of principles which they use for hiring, decision-making, promotions. Every activity, they would run through those principles. You can study and then say, oh, this is what I want. Now, you make a fancy list of various values that you want. Then you figure out what kind of business am I doing? Are they really aligned? Let's say I'm in a deterministic business. I'm going to build a competitor to Infosys. Do I really want creativity? So use a good judgment or, or the market will teach you good judgment in a short while. That's also fine. And once you exercise that, then the question comes is, okay, this is a list of words on a piece of paper or on a wall. They actually mean nothing. The reality comes in is how you execute it. It's like at home when we tell our kids, you know what, don't lie, right? And then somebody calls and on the phone and you don't want to pick up the phone and tell the kid, hey, pick up the phone and say, you know what, so-and-so is not at home. Now, the question is that if I ask you to guess, is the kid going to learn how to lie or he's not going to learn how to lie? He's going to learn how to lie because you're training them, right? So actions and the space matters. So the execution, the moment you put some words on paper, how are you going to execute it? A great example would be to execute it like Tony Shea. The way to say, he said, okay, deliver a wow experience. Now, when you think it through, if your customer service is going to deliver a wow experience, then can we have a limit on the number of calls? Would be the focus be on the quantity of the calls or the quality of the call? Quality of the call is subjective decision making. 
which then the manager also has to be aligned ki, hey you know what i'm rating this call at 10 on 10 you spend one hour on the call there was no tangible outcome but the customer calmed down customer seemed to be smiling okay this is a very subjective kind of outcome and somebody might rate on 10 on 10 that's encourages people you promote the correct kind of or you promote people who display those values and slowly it becomes a culture that you as a founder can't break out of even you are bound by that because people will hold you to account why did you do this or why did you not do that so that's the way to build a culture not an easy part. it requires a commitment and an investment of time and effort okay so we talked about values we also briefly touched upon various rituals for example at google the 20 percent rule or at tony shea's company zappos where they gave that two months salary as a check and different companies manifest different rituals even airbnb for example they have this tradition of hosting weekly global meetings just to enforce uh, culture because they wanted to create a global company and uh, they wanted to belong anywhere culture belong anywhere yeah exactly so they created this global meetings and different companies create different rituals that align with their culture and every startup figures it out in their journey and we also talked about how the culture is maintained how it evolves for example we talked about tim cooks and how apple's culture evolved and we also talked about the impact of culture on success how infosys's culture actually drives them to success how google's culture drives them to success and each in their own right Finally, we would love to just touch upon how do you handle challenges in maintaining a culture, right? Like what strategies do you adopt for addressing conflicts or changes in culture? And how do you go about it? So I will address this from a founder's perspective, right? So what are the challenges? One of the most common challenges is a culture can have subcultures. Like suddenly you'll find that in your company, your product and tech team don't even mix around with, let's say, your operations team or customer service team. Right. Both the teams say don't like each other. They cannot sit and have meals together. Right. So then you know that, okay, here's the challenge. I've got two subcultures in the company. Right. And when you see that, what is the company culture? Company culture will only be the overlap between these two subcultures or the intersection space. The rest is that the rest of the energy that the teams have, they're at cross purposes, they're not helping meeting the. So one of the pieces of is, let's say, different subcultures. The second challenge, I'll just identify the two major challenges. Subculture is a natural phenomena as a team gets larger and larger. And people will tend to congregate as smaller groups because they have a common vision or their DNA, they simply are getting together because of a common DNA, right? And then they start reinforcing, not because of a conscious plan, but a different DNA and that DNA starts getting reinforced, right? And then that is not a great idea for the company, usually. And the second is where the business demand conflicts with the culture, right? Let's say in Google, the senior manager have been around for 10, 15 years. They have the good sense that, hey, let's not take on operation heavy project because they're doomed for failure. And these are coming from senior people who have spent 15 years and who understand that in the past, smaller projects have failed. Large projects will also fail. Now, as your startup, you take on a project with or without your consent, some senior person takes on a project which is not actually aligned with the culture, then to deliver that project, they will start breaking some of the cultural rules and norms and weakening the cultures. Whereas the good decision might be that, hey, you know, forget this is sunk cost, let's abandon this project. So either you'll have to stick to your culture or to the business requirement. Then once you do one project, oh, this is required for the survival of the company or this year, this is important. Next year, again, some other manager will get another project. Hey, you know what? This is going to give us great revenue. We need to have slightly different kind of people, you know, empower them slightly differently, etc. So business versus culture becomes a challenge. These are two major challenges, subcultures and 
when business and culture collides. Let's take the larger one, which I found out face initially, business versus culture colliding. At that point of time, if you require a completely new project, which requires a different kind of mindset or culture, then physically separate out that particular team. It's when a large company, large established, say listed company acquires a startup. One of the wisest decisions they take is to let the startup operate from its own offices and completely independently so that the DNA of the startup is not crushed by the juggernaut of the large company. So keep them physically separate, right? Even we are seeing that in even banks, large banks, they're like old behemoths, bureaucratic, and they acquire a nimble fintech. The best they can do is keep it separate, right? The other part is from a founder's perspective is that that's a call that you take. These are a few of the fundamental calls that when business clashes with culture, what are you going to do? If you choose business and you put in a lot of effort to you know break down your cultural part so that you can deliver a particular project, know that you're incurring debt. Call it cultural debt. You'll have to pay the price going forward. So there will always be a cost to it. right? And the more number of times you take this decision in favor of business, it simply means that you have a weaker culture or the culture is not what you defined it to be. That's about it. It's something different. And the other way comes is this problem of subcultures. It is generally a good idea to discourage subcultures. So a top-down approach is the normal path you would take, right? If your top team is culturally aligned, if there's a division in the top team itself where, let's say, the senior most, the co-founder, the top team, who genuinely feel that, you know what, this culture doesn't work for my team because they have some certain ideas or certain viewpoint on the subject. So get that alignment first. Get that alignment and use that alignment in various ways. Let's say, for example, in hiring, if you let a team hire its own people without any inputs from other people, then there's a higher chance of subculture developing. But let's say you're hiring a sales manager and one of the interview rounds is taken by the product and tech people. One round is taken by the operations people. A couple of rounds are taken by the sales people. Then you'll have the common culture implemented during a hiring practice itself. right? Similarly, vice versa. If you're hiring for tech, but the sales leader also sitting in the interview, an ops leader also sitting in the interview, and people need to clear the interviews before getting selected, then you know you're enforcing, uh, you're, you're, you're strengthening your core culture and not the subcultures. You're weakening the subculture, strengthening the core culture. Then comes this practices. If you have a completely different, you know, rules for your a particular team, okay, different leaf plans, different, then they identify very differently from you. Then you're stratifying your company on different privileges, etc. Let's say Google would say, you know what, oh, if you are from the tech team, you get pizzas. But if you're not from the tech team, you cannot order pizzas. I mean, that would just create two different divisions. And, and so the lifetime of the employee, how you treat them, are you treating them in the same particular fashion or not, would help strengthen the culture and not let subcultures develop. So these two, I think, challenges in the zero to one journey, multiple challenges come through. But in the initial journey, these are two challenges that you might want to look at. Amazing. This has been an amazing conversation, Devashish. Thank you so much for chiming in with the inputs and I'm sure that the listeners would have enjoyed listening to the podcast. Thank you so much, Sachin. It was a great talking to you as always. Thank you very much. Thanks. And that, dear listeners, brings us to the end of another enlightening episode of Zero to One Founder. We hope you've enjoyed our deep dive into the world of building company culture. 
Now, before we sign off, we want to hear from you. If you have any questions, comments and experiences that you want to share, please DM me on LinkedIn or just comment right here. And of course, a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support, your enthusiasm and curiosity fuel our passion to keep creating content that matters. A founder's journey is hard, but there are problems that are already solved. Learn from them. Until next time, remember that building a strong company culture is not just a buzzword, it's a recipe for success in the startup world. Take care, stay inspired and keep chasing those entrepreneurial dreams. We'll catch you in the next episode.